0: If you would for just a second take the sheet that has your words that we were just singing on it. If you flip it over on the back of the bulletin, there's a song we're going to sing in a few minutes when we're done here called Before the Throne of God. It's a song that we've been singing here regularly at CODA for probably about 10 years now. And it's one we come back to and we sing a lot. But if you look there, the very first verse just says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands, and my name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me hence depart. And so it's a glorious theology in that song. And uh, we sing Before the Throne here at Coda because that's one of the songs that we really just love that points us to the truth of who God is. It's really a good test case on the songs that we pick in the songs that we choose to sing here. Because we have the conviction here as a church that the, the songs we sing and as we worship together is part of the teaching ministry of the church. You'll leave here having forgot much of what I said, but oftentimes a song will be stuck in your head. And you'll leave maybe singing that song and those words kind of rattling around and stick with you for a long time. And so it's important when we pick songs that the theology is is good and it's true and it's deep and it's rich. And so Before the Throne of God is one of those songs. And so we love to sing that because it is part of the teaching ministry. It's part of our discipleship. It's part of our community that binds us together when we have these songs in common. And so we love that song and we sing it often here. And I love that song because it it points us to the truth as... Uh, of God sending Jesus and he is our faithful high priest that it talks about in Hebrews. And he's come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He's come to be our perfect priest. In the Old Testament, we would see the priesthood that God gives as the priest stands as an intermediary between man and God. How a sinful people can be near a holy God. And so God sets up the, the, the temple system and the sacrifices and the high priest resides over that And we see that in the Old Testament pointing us to how we can approach God. When we get to the book of Hebrews, and now after Jesus' finished work, it points us and shows us that Jesus is our true high priest. And he is the way that we approach God and the way we come to him. And so this morning, as we've been thinking just the last few weeks in Advent, talking about the joy that comes from the incarnation, I want us to think today of the joy that comes from seeing Jesus as our perfect intermediary, our perfect high priest, the one who's come that that draws us back into this relationship with God that he is our help we could say that he's the one that stands to help and so as before the throne of God says that he stands there and as long as he stands no tongue can bid me thence depart that God has us in that And so I want us just to think about the glory of Jesus helping us, and we're going to look at that in Hebrews chapter 2. We're really going to focus on verses 14 to 18, and then chapter 4, 14 to 16, as it points us to that. And this is the way I want us to look at those two passages this morning. First, I just want us to ask this question of why do we need help? Secondly, how Jesus helps us, and how the Incarnation helps us to understand fully what He's come to do, and so... Why do we need help? How does Jesus help us? And then the joy that comes from seeing this truth. And So let's just start with why we need help. Why we need a faithful high priest. Why we need Jesus to help us. And why we need him to come to us. And so the first, uh, as we ask that question, why do we need help? Real simply, the answer biblically is that we're sinners. That we've turned our back on God, every single one of us. We've spent a long time this year, if you've been with us, in the book of Romans. In Romans chapters one 2 in the first half of chapter 3 just make that so clear. Paul shows us that we are all sinners, that we have all turned our back on God. We can go back and run all the way through Scripture and how it just shows us over and over that God created us for this relationship with Him, but that we have chosen autonomy in our life and we've decided to turn our back on Him. We have sinned. We have ignored God in the world He created or rebelled against God in the world He created. And we could go through all those texts and we could, we could go through Romans 1 through 3, which we did earlier in the year in great detail and just see that. You know, we get to Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what I want to do this morning when we ask that question of why we need help, I want you just to think with me for, for just a moment. And I think this, this is a biblical idea. Actually, Romans 1 tells us our conscience bears witness. We are made in God's image. We know that we're sinners. We know that we need help. And I want you just to think about that for a second. Instead of running through all those passages, I want you just to think about your own life and how we know this. I think we know this whether you believe in the Bible. I think we know this whether you've even thought about it as far as what the Bible teaches. I think we all know that we need help. And so when we think about it, our conscience bears witness. You know, oftentimes... Uh, we we uh, we fall short in all sorts of different ways. I've used this example for years. Francis Schaeffer used to say that even if you had no understanding of God and who He is, that you've not grown up in the church, you've not been around the Bible, you've never heard the things that Scripture tells us, you don't know anything about Romans one through three. Schaeffer says that all of us would stand condemned by our own uh, standard. And so Francis Schaeffer was a brilliant Christian apologist, and he said, so imagine, he would tell this story, he'd say, imagine that when you're born, an invisible tape recorder is hung around your neck. And this tape recorder is there, and it only clicks on and records your voice when you make a moral judgment on anyone around. Whenever you say, you should do this, or you shouldn't do that, that's the only time it records anything. And what Schaeffer says is, if, you would, if, there, if we were to have this invisible tape recorder, That when you die and you stand before God and you say, well, I didn't know anything about the Bible and I was not aware of those things and I didn't know that, that God could take the invisible tape recorder off your neck and play back your own voice and you would be condemned from your own understanding of the things that you said in your life. And really that's what Romans 1 says, our conscience bears witness. We know innately that there's a God. We know innately that there are moral absolutes, that we even say that to other people. And so we know this in our lives, and so we, we wrestle with that. And so what happens a lot of times is we become really good at defending ourselves. We become defense attorneys for our own self in a whole lot of different ways. And we try to put on a good face and try to show, a, I, I've got it all together. Because we know that we don't actually have it all together. I, I remember reading a book in, in seminary called, uh, I, I'm pretty sure the book was called True Face. And it was in a class about spiritual development. And I remember reading this book. And it really stuck with me for, for a lot of years. It's been a while since I read it. But the idea was that we all wear different masks depending on the situation we're in. And so if I just use myself for an example, I show up here on a Sunday and I kind of assume the role of, of pastor and teacher and preacher and, and those types of things. And so you're operating in that way. And it's not that that's not real, but that's kind of your primary identity in this place and in this time and in this way, so you kind of assume that. I leave here, and I go home, and I'm home with my wife and my children, and now I assume more of a role of, of husband and father. Uh, maybe Joanna leaves to go out, and now I'm home alone with the boys, and now it's more father than it is husband. Or or Joanna and I are together and it's more husband than it is father. Or I go to visit my parents and now it's more son rather than it is husband or father. And we wear these different masks, so to speak, in our life. We we assume these different roles and we kind of, in different places that we go. Uh, Maybe at home in my neighborhood, it's now more neighbor and friend than it is these other ones. And so when we assume these roles and we kind of, Put on these masks, so to speak. We we operate in these different ways, but every day, in different ways, and in those different situations, I fail in some ways. I fail as a father. I, I lose my temper with my children. I kind of blow it. Oh, that wasn't good, right? Or, or sometimes I fail in other people's estimation. I, I let them down in what they thought I should be in one of those roles. Or maybe I fail in my own estimation. Or maybe I fail spectacularly and I know it clearly, right? I'm not doing well in one of those areas. And so we struggle with that. And what happens a lot of times is we become our own defense attorney. Well, I lost my temper with my kids because they were just acting crazy, right? Or I've said this before. I'll, I'll confess. There's times when my, my boys are yelling. They're yelling at each other. Get out of my room or, you know, stop that or whatever. And you are like, stop, guys, stop, stop, stop. And they yell again, stop. And then you go, stop yelling. And they go, but dad, you're yelling. And it's like, yeah, but I'm yelling because you were yelling, right? And, and suddenly, I'm really good at justifying why I'm yelling. It's not my fault. They were yelling, and so I had it, right? And so we're really good at, when we blow it, making excuses for why we blow it. And it's kind of that idea in this book about putting on these masks that we wear and try to show to different, different people in our life. And so maybe you can relate to some of that, my own, when I see those things. Uh, maybe yours look different. Maybe the places you go and where you are is a little different. But I think if we're really honest, that all of us know at different times that we blow it. We have different times when we're not living up to our own standard of whatever those different roles we take on in our life. And we know it at different times. And I think if we're honest, all of us kind of play this a uh, defense attorney at different times. We're pretty good at being like, well, I, I wasn't exactly as bad as that person because of X, Y, and Z, or I was really tired, or I was really hungry, or I had a good reason. And so we're good at doing that. But my point in all that is just to say that we all struggle at different times. We all know that we're not perfect. We all uh, seek to defend ourselves. We all need help. And the Bible tells us that clearly, that every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God, that our conscience bears witness, that although that we are made in God's image and we are made to love God and to love people, we've all failed to do so at different times. And so when we struggle with that, we're made for something more than that, and we we, we struggle with it at different times. But the truth is, we we wear those masks, we kind of put on a good face, we seek to make excuses for it, because we want to be Known and we want to be loved. What God says is we're made to be relational, right? We're made in his image, ultimately to have a relationship with him and then with others. This is the way God's made us. We talked about this uh, the last couple of weeks. We talked about the Trinity and being made in God's image and what that means to be relational. And so we're made for this. But there's a problem. I remember Tim Keller saying this years ago. We want to be known because we want to be loved. We don't want to be known because we want to be loved. And, and what he was saying is that if I showed you everything of me, you wouldn't love me. Right? That's why we put on these masks and we pretend like we got it together and we defend ourselves and we go, oh, I got it, right? And we all struggle with this. If you really knew everything about me, it would scare you to death and you wouldn't really love me. So we want to be known because we want to be loved, but we don't want to know, be known because we want to be loved. And so this is where Jesus comes in. He's our great high priest that takes up our case, that stands for us. And that's what we sing in Before the Throne of God Above. As long as he stands, no one can tell me, thence depart, that he is there for me, that he is my help, that he is my advocate, that he is my intercessor, and he comes to us in the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas, that we're celebrating at Advent. And so I want us to think about how Jesus helps us, what he comes to do and what Hebrews tells us here. And so look at chapter 2, look at verses 14 and 15 with me. And we're going to think about what Jesus does and how he helps us. But let's start with kind of the spiritual bullseye of what he does. And so look at 14 and 15. Since therefore the children shared in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what is it talking about? Just this big picture, book of Hebrews is a sermon letter written to the early church to encourage them. And I think we could summarize Hebrew in a couple ways. One is it's helping us go from weariness to rest. The book of Hebrews is, is seeking for us to rest in who Jesus is. Or, or a second way to say just the book of Hebrews to kind of encapsulate it is Jesus is better than everything. And because Jesus is better than everything and when we see him we can truly rest. And so in the book of Hebrews, it's talking about how Jesus is better than all the ways that God was operating with people in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the shadows of the Old Testament. And so now it's talking here about him being the ultimate high priest who's done for us perfectly what the priesthood couldn't do. And so when it talks here about him partaking of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. I want to just ask this question. What power does the devil have over you? I want you to think about what I just said about wearing the mask, knowing the truth of, of where you are, how you struggle, the things you don't want people to see, the ways that we defend ourselves. And so the power uh, partly that the devil has and what we see in Scripture is that he accuses us. He comes and says, You're a sinner and you're a hypocrite. And he points those things out. Actually, the Bible tells us this. Revelation chapter 12 talks about the devil, Satan being the accuser of the brethren. Or you could go and you could read Job chapter 1 and 2. And the devil, Satan shows up from wandering to and fro the earth is what it says. And he has this conversation with God. And God says, if you consider my servant Job, And what does the devil immediately do? He starts to accuse. He goes, well, Job's a good guy and all, but it's because you've given him everything. He's not really that good. If you took it away, he would curse you. He wouldn't suddenly be be so faithful. And he starts to accuse, and that's what he does. You see this over and over in the Bible. You see in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus turns to Peter, and he says, Peter, I prayed for you because the the devil has demanded to have you to sift you like wheat. That he's going to attack you. He's going to accuse you. He's going to come before you, and I want you to think about the power that Satan has in your life, to point out your hypocrisy, right? to come and to say, you're a hypocrite. You claim to be a Christian, but you blow it all the time. You put on these fake masks, and you pretend like you've got it together, and he comes and he accuses. And the power that Satan has, and it talks about here, when it says in uh, verse uh, 15, and deliver all those through the fear of death who are subject to lifelong slavery. That Satan can come and accuse you. That when you stand before God, that he doesn't deserve to be in your presence. He's a sinner. And that's the power that's there. But it says Jesus has come to defeat them. And so look at what it says that Jesus does. In verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So how does Jesus do that? How does the incarnation, does Jesus come to help us and destroy the power of Satan? Look at chapter 4 and verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so what it says is Jesus comes and he takes on flesh and he partakes of the same things that we do. And I want you to really think about that for just a second. Of course we say this, right? Advent, Christmas, incarnation, Jesus in the flesh when we say it. But do we really stop to think about that? Do we really get our head around the reality of the creator God of the universe humbling himself to the point of coming to us? Coming into time and space to limiting himself in that way, to becoming fully man? And as he does, he lives this life. Uh, He's born in the Middle East to a teenage couple under the suspicion of a pregnancy that's not legitimate. He grows up in that. At some point in his adolescence, his earthly father dies. He's now the oldest son of a family with no father, with a single mom, living in poverty, under the most brutal uh, empire at the time, the Roman Empire. A Roman Empire that taxes you to the tune of about 90% of your income. That if you say anything bad about the way that they deal with that and keep the peace they publicly crucify you. And that this is what Jesus grows up in. And so he grows up the God of the universe with all the trappings of life, with all the temptations, with all the struggles, with all the fatigue, with all the sadness, with every bit of it chapter 4 and verse 15 says, but he did all of that yet without sin. Fully man, but also fully God. Perfectly in balance. And so knowing everything that we go through, but yet never sinned. And so all of that to say, well, how does that lead to him destroying the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery? Well, scripture tells us Second Corinthians chapter 5, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lives the perfect life. He does what we haven't done, and he does it perfectly in every way. He loves God, and he loves people without sin. And he comes to the end of his life, and he says, I will lay down all the blessings I deserve, and I will become your sin on your behalf. And so on the cross, it says Jesus takes on the sin of all those who have put their faith in him. All of it. He becomes sin. He who knew no sin becomes sin on our behalf. And by his death, we are now rescued from the accusations of the devil. We are now rescued from the fear of death because Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. It's why we sing the song, Before the Throne of God. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. What power does the devil have to accuse you of sin? But then Jesus stands in your place and says, I have taken his sin and I have done it and he is righteous because of what I have done for him. There is no accusation that stands against my child. And God ends it. And there is no accusation that that Satan can bring. There's nothing that he can say that Jesus says, I have not already paid for. And so he tells us here that by Jesus coming and by experiencing all the things that we have, yet without sin, he has made a way for us to be reconciled. And so when Satan accuses us, again, go back to before the throne of God. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. What power does Satan have? None because of what Jesus has done. If you are in Christ, there is no accusation that he can bring. Jesus says, I paid for it and stuff. And so Jesus comes to save us from our sin. But in saving us, it tells us more than that here. In the incarnation, that's, that's the big thing, right? that our salvation is secure in Jesus. But it also says he is our perfect high priest who lives to intercede for us, that stands in our place. And so I want you just to think about that for just a second. Jesus knows everything that you're going through. And so look at verse 17 and 18 of chapter two. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and the servants of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the taking on the sin of all those who would put their faith in him. Bearing the wrath of God on our part. So God is no longer angry, his perfect righteous anger. He is now favorable towards us because Jesus has done it. But then in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so Jesus knows everything you go through and he's able to help you in the day to day. You are eternally secure, but we still struggle with sin. We still want to put on the mask. We still want to defend ourselves. And Jesus is there to help us in all of that because he knows everything that you've gone through. Every single bit of it. And so I want you just to think about the glory of what that means. That Jesus knows all of it. Now, there's a question that I, I had for years, and maybe you've had this. Maybe you haven't thought about it. But it does say that he's tempted in every way that we are, and he's able to help us when we're being tempted, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 15, he says he's able to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I always struggle with the idea of Jesus knowing everything we've gone through, and he's been tempted in every way, and he can sympathize, and he can walk with us in that, but yet he's without sin. And so I, I used to think, like, how does that work, right? That how does Jesus know all of it if he's never dealt with, like, the guilt of sin and he's never had those, right? He's perfect in every way. And yes, he's been tempted in every way, but he never gave in and he never, and so it was always like this disconnect for me. But there's a couple things I want you to consider. I've thought about this for years and different people have kind of pointed out. When he is without sin, there's a couple things. One, Jesus is fully with us in our suffering and our struggle. Think about this for just a second. When I sit and I empathize with somebody else, are they're telling me the things that are going on in their life, the biggest struggle to that is my own sin. Right? Have you ever had that? Someone's telling you, and in the back of your mind, you're like, oh, i got to pick up the kids later. Or... Yeah, me too, or I've got something going. Right, you start to insert yourself into it, right? That's what our sinfulness is. And you go and you're you're with them and you're feeling it and you love this person, but your sin starts to kind of pop up and get in the way. Does that make sense? We feel it ourselves and our own stuff gets in. But Jesus is without sin. And so in every single person, in every single instant, in every single thing, he's never preoccupied with his own stuff. He's always fully present with you. You see this in Jesus' earthly life as he goes from person to person. And he's fully with them. Jesus is never sinfully going, man, i got other things to do. And i got to get to the next thing. He's always there fully. And so he can sympathize fully and completely with you in everything that you're going through. But then what about the, the part of he hasn't sinned? Well, he didn't sin, so... He doesn't have the exact same experience, but there's a couple things to think about about that. One, because Jesus never gave in to temptation. He knows what temptation is greater than you do. Think about this for a second. When I am tempted to sin, there are times when I give in, right? Maybe I resist sin three times or four times, and then the fifth time you kind of, uh, right? So, give you an example, somebody says to you, uh, so-and-so is such a great guy, never do any right? And this person's really wronged you. You now have an opportunity in that moment. I'm either going to bury that or I'm going to speak ill of this person. And you go, I'm going to set aside the temptation to say that and I'm not going to say anything. And you don't. And then somebody else says it and you don't. And somebody else says it and you don't. But then the fourth time you're like, well, actually, let me tell you, And you step in and you embrace that. You embrace gossip or you embrace talking bad about somebody. Jesus never gave in to sin. Ever. He was tempted in the same way we are, yet without sin. And so where you and I will give up and we don't go to the end, he goes to the end. Maybe a better example. If I go out today and run. Let's say I'm going to go run 15 miles today. Physically, I could probably run 15 miles. It would be really slow. It would take a really long time. It would be really miserable, but I probably could physically do it. At about mile three, I'd wanna quit because that's usually about as long as I ever run. Three miles is good and I'm done. Mile five, my knees would be hurting really bad. My back would start to get sore. Mile eight or nine, I'm gonna be exhausted. Mile 10, I'm really gonna wanna quit. So so on and so forth, right? If I quit at mile three, I don't know what it means to resist the temptation to quit all the way to mile 15. But Jesus never gave in to temptation, so he knows perfectly what it is to resist temptation always and everything to the very end. And so not only does he know our temptation, he knows it better than we do. He's never given in, And so he knows exactly what it is, and so he's there to help you in your time of need because he knows your temptation better than you do. But there's one last part to that. You go, yes, without sin. But Jesus doesn't know what it's like, the guilt and the shame and the inadequacy. And I blew it again and I can't believe I did that. But that's not true. He does know that. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you realize that on the cross that Jesus became your sin? He took on the sin of all those who would put their faith in him. And he knows exactly what it means. The guilt and the shame and the hurt. He knows exactly what our sin deserves as he paid for it. As he bore the wrath of God. There is nothing that you will ever go through in this life that Jesus doesn't know exactly what you're dealing with. Nothing. And so in all that, he meets us there. And what does he do with all of this? This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is what we celebrate at Advent. That Jesus came and he did all of this for us. And yet he did it. Uh, As it says in chapter 4 and verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Or in chapter Two, it says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or in chapter seven and verse twenty-five of Hebrews, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And what it tells us is that Jesus lives to intercede as your perfect high priest; that he's done for you what you could never do for yourself, and now he puts all of his energy into. Helping you and walking with you and interceding for you in all things. And there's nothing that you're going through that he doesn't know. That he didn't resist the temptation. That he doesn't know exactly what's going on. That he can't meet you in and help you through. Nothing. And so all the the masks that we put on and we try to put on a good face, guess what? Jesus knows all of that. And he loves you perfectly and fully because of what he's done for you even behind all of that. You are known and you are loved and it's perfect and full because of what Christ has done. He is our faithful high priest who lives to intercede for us, who meets us in all those things. He meets you with grace and mercy in your time of need and there's nothing he can't help you with. There's nothing he can't use in your life to refine and teach you and show you and bring you closer to him. And so I want you to think just as we think about Advent. And what we've been talking about the last few weeks is we've been inviting you in to this fast with us. When we set aside different things and we seek the Lord at this time. And how do we do that? And what does that look like? And I just want to remind you what it says here. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. that Jesus called you to come. And it's because of what he's done. It's because he's come to us. And he's done it completely and perfectly. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. That we now have access to the Father through what Jesus has done, our perfect high priest. So pray with me. God, we thank you for the glorious good news. That you love us completely and totally and fully. That you've come and done for us what we could never do for ourselves. That you humbled yourself to the point of laying down your life for us. That we can have a relationship with you. But we thank you for the glory that you are not a God that is far off.
1: That you have experienced, that you have walked
0: in this life, that you know the things that we struggle with, you know the hardships, you know the frustrations, you know all of it and you know it fully and you call us to come. To come to you. To come to your throne of grace and to find mercy in our time of need. And so I just pray that we would take you seriously on your offer. On your call to, to love you and to come to you in that way and that you meet us. and So help us today to turn to you, to seek you above all else. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.